This episode is brought to you by North Texas Honda Dealers. North Texas Honda Dealers, they're here to help. He has time, launches it to the end zone. Touchdown, Terrence Williams. Goes to the right side for Crabtree. It's caught. He put, oh, he's going hard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Republic of Football. I am your host, Ishmael Johnson, here uh, for the first time, I guess, since the season in three separate locations. Uh, Mike and Malpal. Mike, how you doing, man? Doing pretty good. Um, forgetting which city I'm in on a day-to-day basis, but we're making the rounds. Yeah, I, I, I always have to check your Twitter or your Instagram to see what college you're visiting next. Uh, I think you're, you just left Houston, correct? Yeah, I'm just back from Houston. Uh, funny story in Houston. I forgot what my hotel room number is. Have y'all ever done that where you yes. check into a hotel, yep. you get All to the, the room, you leave to go do something, you come back and you got to walk to the front and be like, hey, I have checked in here and we have <laughs> talked, but I have no idea what room number I'm in because I, this is my fourth hotel in five days. And I, yep. you know, it, it could be one of the other numbers. I don't want to walk into the wrong one. So I had that experience in Houston, which is always lovely. And you know what it is too? I think you're so excited to just get to your room when you're checking in. Cause usually when you're checking in, you're about to go do something or you're about to go to sleep. So you're not really listening to what yeah. the clerk says. So you're just like, right. okay, just give me my key and I'm going. And you just don't really comprehend what number it is. Yeah. Walked right back into that hotel and was like, cause I always kind of stay at Fairfield Inns. Those tend to be the cheapest. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. so I walked in and was like, this looks the exact same as the one in Lubbock and the one in El Paso. So where do I, where do I go? <laughs> Uh, Mallory, you're the only one in the office today. How is it being? Uh, how is how is it right now? Obviously, I'm the only one that works hard around here because I'm the only one in the office. So, if that tells you anything, no, no, it's great. Got here early, uh, set up the Zoom call, and uh, yeah, we're doing well today. Already had an early start, so feeling yeah. good. So uh, today we have our uh, one of our final interview series uh, interviews left in the series. We have UTEP head coach Dana Dimmel coming up. Uh, somebody that has always been really nice to us. I really appreciate what he's, uh, and obviously he's been successful, but um, I always liked how he's treated DCTF and how he's treated access to the program. He's been more or less an open book um, since the day he got there, which is kind of uh, really refreshing to see. Um, Usually when new coaches, or he's obviously not a new coach, but when a coach steps into a situation like UTEP, they typically do the opposite where they shut everything down and it's like, we'll take care of everything internally. Um, Coach Dimmel has basically been since day one, basically just like, opened the, you know, rolled out the red carpet for anyone who wants to cover them. So when I was planning on going down there, I was trying to haggle with him on like what day is the best. And eventually he was just kind of like, how about you just make a day, you come down here and we'll just, you know, like just come through on that day and we'll figure it out. And that's exactly yeah, you don't get that from every other coach. Like that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. You, know, like, you just do your schedule and then, you know, we'll, we'll I got 30 minutes somewhere in that day. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's cool. That's cool. There we go. So uh, before we get to that, though, we do want to take care of some headlines. Nothing, nothing wild, um, but some things that are still probably noteworthy. Uh, let's start at the top with one major school who had their pro pro uh, spring game. Excuse me, um, Texas A&M. Craven, you paid attention to this one closely, and by all indications, um, 
there's going to be some more issues behind center, uh, at least at least based off the spring game. Uh, obviously, there's still summer workouts and all that stuff, fall camp coming up. But based off of these couple months of practice, it still looks like AM and uh, has some questions to sort out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you watch that spring game, and I think if you're an AM fan, you wanted somebody to rise to the top. You wanted to exit that spring game going, okay, you know, maybe he's not a perfect quarterback, but Haynes King is going to be our guy, or Max Johnson looked really good, or, oh, wow, look at how good Connor Wigman already is with his first semester on campus. I think you you watched that spring game, and you left it not knowing who A&M's quarterback was going to be, and not because they have three really good options, uh, but because they're not sure they have one really good option right now. You know, Max Johnson uh, is consistent. I, I think you know what you're going to get from Max Johnson. You know what the ceiling mm-hmm. is. Uh, you saw him at LSU. He does have experience within the SEC. He is kind of a pocket pass first quarterback. So that works in a Jimbo system. I do think Haynes King gives you some more dynamicism. You know, like he can really run. They said on the broadcast that he's the third fastest player at Texas A&M. So a really good athlete, you know, but Jimbo's never unlocked his quarterbacks to let them run around in that kind of way. You know, when he had Kellen Mond, one of the big kind of gripes from the A&M fan base was that Kellen Mond wasn't going to be able to, to, to run as much as maybe he should. And then if you go to, to Wigman, I just don't know if Fisher's offense is one that a true freshman can step in and really play well in. Like it is a very complicated NFL-style system, for better or for worse, and you need some experience in there. So uh, just uh, not a good day for the quarterbacks and, and a day where I think you kind of left there as an A&M fan having more questions than answers, and that's not, that's not where you want to be with such high hopes going into the summer, into the 22 season. Yeah, you look at – I mean, the best quarterback that Jimbo Fisher had, Jameis Winston, he still came in as a redshirt freshman, right? He needed that extra year to kind of learn everything. Um, and even then, like in his second year under that system, he struggled a lot. He turned the ball over a lot, right? He kind of built up that resume as a Heisman Trophy winning freshman and then kind of, I won't say coasted off that, but definitely wasn't the same player that next year, even though he was still the number one pick in the NFL. Um, going, go, Using that as kind of a, to me, as like the best case scenario, still shows how, how tough that offense is to run. Uh, people had many issues with Kellen Mond in that offense, and I thought it was pretty clear that if Jimbo Fisher thinks he can run that offense, I thought he did a really good job. And I think there were still some frustrations with how he did it, right? Um, and now I think with a and struggles, especially last year, it kind of I think there's a newfound appreciation for what Kellen Mond was able to do. Um, I do kind of agree that with you, about Max Johnson being kind of a steady hand. I think eventually we'll see Haynes King, I think, win it back out, right? He's still kind of dusting off the rust from injury. I think he will be the starter towards the fall. I think I wouldn't be shocked if somebody like if somebody like Wigman towards the end of the season maybe works his way into that. But I don't know. At that by that point, you probably aren't hoping to switch quarterbacks. Um, but I do think that if they had somebody like Max Johnson this past year. I wonder if we're looking at AM in a little bit of a different light, maybe having more of a steady hand as opposed to somebody who, you know, has the physical tools like a Calzada did, but not the kind of down-to-down consistency. I do think Max Johnson is an improvement over Calzada. Yes. You know, it, you kind of know where you're going to be, that eight and four, nine and three, ten and two kind of feels like your ceiling. I think if we see Wigman this year, that's Jimbo admitting that 2023, 2024 are kind of the years that AM are really going to load up for this national title run, right? They got that big recruiting class in there. You know, maybe early on in the season, things don't work out very well. Maybe they've lost a couple games to where we're not going to win the SEC. Let's start getting ahead. 
uh, for next year and get our quarterback for next year, you know, ready if that doesn't end up being Haynes or Max. Because both those guys have multiple, you know, years of eligibility left. It's going to be interesting to see kind of if he, if all three of those quarterbacks are even here in the fall, right? Like that's another thing to really like to talk about. If Haynes Kings walks out of spring thinking, you know, he's, he's going to be behind Max Johnson and then there's this young guy, you know, that's the future. Maybe he goes and looks at somewhere else. Like there's so many uh, variables at play in, in modern football at that quarterback position. Um, for AM, and you know, it's not even just the quarterbacks. I don't know if they have any wide receivers. You know, I know Evan Stewart's a star, but when a five-star freshman who should still be in the spring semester of his senior year is your unquestioned number one wide receiver, that's an indictment of what you've done behind him. You know, Jalen yeah. Preston was a superstar out of high school, and he's just never really emerged. Uh, Moose Muhammad, a really good player in high school, just haven't, hasn't taken that next step. If, if you're counting on a true freshman, Evan Stewart, to be – you know, your guy, it's going to look a lot like Texas's offense last year where like Xavier Worthing can put up all these numbers in the world, but you don't have to guard a second wide receiver. You don't have a third wide receiver to worry about. There's only so much one wide receiver can do damage wise. I, I'm not sure it's all quarterback at AM. I don't know if they have the wide receiver figured out either. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think that and some other, I mean, along that news, um, Caleb Chapman announced he was transferring. So like there was a guy who broke out you know, a couple of years ago and you were like, oh, here, maybe here's a guy who can emerge later on down the line. Didn't end up happening. He's gone now. Um, I guess if you are an AM fan and uh, Evan Stewart kind of, you know, he finished uh, according to their stats, at least seven, seven catches for 75 yards. Right. So like whether or not the depth is there behind him, at least, you know, okay, we do have something here, right. A playmaker that, I mean, what, since Christian Kirk, they haven't like you know i'm not saying he's going to be that level right now but like they haven't had somebody they could even think of getting to that level since then so you know if you're if you're in and that's kind of a positive um I, you can probably take from this from this uh from the spring game offensively moving on to second bit of news uh smu we mentioned them uh last week or i think it was last week or a couple weeks ago uh kind of what they're doing at running back and um yeah, I guess they figured it out. Kamar Wheaton, Alabama transfer, um, former five-star recruit coming in. We d already didn't have, even when, we already had, a, a, we thought their backfield was settled, right? We thought like, oh, more or less, yeah, sure, Ulysses Bentley, you know, that that's kind of a loss. But overall, I think through committee, we kind of thought they'd be able to make up some kind of production. I think Kamar Wheaton solves that. <laughs> um, obviously, we'll see. I don't know if he's actually, uh, is he immediately eligible? I don't know, because I know he's not part of that COVID class that has that automatic transfer in them. Yeah, he should be, he should have the one-time transfer uh, and okay. be ready to roll with, with four years of eligibility. That's the other part that's, that's really true. important. I mean, he redshirted at Alabama last year, so he'll walk in with four years of eligibility. And I don't think he'll be like a 20 carry a guy game. I still think Trey Siggers may be kind of like the quote-unquote bell cow. Right. But Wheaton replaces that explosiveness you lost with Bentley. Like we've talked about on this show plenty of times, Bentley offered that, you know, big play ability, kind of get him the ball in space and he can take it 80 yards. Like Trey Siggers, Tyler Levine, some of those guys on the roster, they're just not built like that. They're more four, five, six yards at a time guy. You know, Wheaton's a track star. You know, he was like a legit 100-meter, 400-meter guy in high school. And you know, he can return kickoffs. He can return punts. He can be your third down back. You can work him into the rotation to eventually become – kind of your every down guy it's a home run um you know for Rhett Lashley and that staff and, and it's kind of a 
you know, a point of intention, like, hey, we're not going anywhere. This this train of transfers that, that Sonny Dyke started at Dallas that really brought SMU back into the forefront, we're going to continue on that path. And landing a five-star running back with four years left of eligibility is a huge, huge deal for Coach Hall and that running back room. Yeah, he was third in that class uh, running backs. Uh, he was sixth, I believe, in Texas, according to 247. But I think you look at the two running backs ahead of him, and they weren't rated, as far as like ratings go, they weren't graded that higher than him. You look at Travion Henderson at Ohio State, you look at Will Shipley at Clemson, who rushed for 700 yards for uh, his freshman year. So like, if you get, you know, anywhere near those guys' level of production, like, I don't know, like you, you're just bringing in another good player um, to kind of boost up that depth in an already pretty deep uh, backfield, in my opinion. So um, yeah, that's good. That's a huge, huge get for them. And I don't know, I guess I didn't, I guess I wasn't paying too much attention to Kamar Wheaton's uh, uh, transfer, but I didn't exactly see them as like an option until it just popped up on my timeline. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just that DFW pipeline, right? Like they mm -hmm. want to be the place where these Dallas kids come back. I know Garland's not exactly Dallas, but it's, it's close enough, you know. And yeah. so uh, to continue that momentum of being the second landing spot uh, for Dallas kids. And Houston's doing the same thing. The University of Houston's doing the same thing where – like they're, you know, Jamal Morris and stuff where they're getting guys that kind of come back, you know, to Houston after maybe their first stop um, doesn't work out. I mean, I, I think we can make the argument that SMU all of a sudden has one of the best running back rooms in the state, you know, regardless of G5, B5, they have as much talent as, as maybe any, you know, place other than maybe Texas in, in the state. So uh, really good job by Lashley Hall. I think, I think Coach Hall as the running backs coach is going to be a, a huge deal for SMU. Uh, with his, his local Dallas ties and stuff, I think that room is always going to be pretty good under this current regime. Yeah. All righty. And lastly, a little bit of news. Um, this one's kind of, this one's a little interesting. Uh, Moro Jomo from Texas. Uh, he didn't, they did media day or not media day, but media availability. Um, and long story short, Moro Jomo does not have media availability anymore um, because Steve Sarkeesian <laughs> revoked it after he kind of went on a little bit of a rant about the younger players at Texas. And uh, I have a quote here. <clears throat> this is from a Jomo. They're 18 and want to chase women, chase money, and chase alcohol. They don't see the future. They're very distracted by what is what is in front of them. That's a hard thing, especially for guys who haven't been in a winning culture. To me, it's very easy for a lot of these powerhouses to keep going because it's established. So the new guys come in and they're like, oh, blank, this is how we have to do it. This is what we do. They always talk about coming here and changing stuff. It's like it's ingrained, like you're uprooting, what, 10 years of this uh, that has just been let go. They're more worried about being on 6th Street than like balling and making 50 million. It's crazy. So, uh, like I said, Steve Sarkeesian does not have a Jomo available for media anymore <laughs> after that. Um, I mean, he, he goes on to talk about, you know, like, uh, not appreciating the opportunity they have. He mentions like, do like some of the guys that have made it out of here, like Stearns and Osai and like, you know, how they, how they got out of, how they got out of Dodge and all that, where they, you know, didn't wait, didn't waste the opportunity to go. Right. Um, and it was a long, it was a long whole thing. He went in, he went into. Was he wrong? Craig? I was going to say, can you say that like, that's technically wrong? I mean, I think he's guilty of saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah. Right. 
right? It's like the unspoken elephant in the room, you know? And, and the head coach doesn't want that out there, right? You right. know, and it's understandable why Sark doesn't want that freely discussed in the media. I would argue, though, after 10 years of mediocrity, this is what you want. I mean, I didn't see a single Texas fan hating on what Moro Jomo said. You know, sure. I, I think... I think he just said what every like message board warrior has been saying about Texas football for like a decade plus that they're entitled, spoiled, uh, have too many distractions around Austin. They, you know, once you're, you want to be, you want to play football for the university of Texas or at the university of Texas, not necessarily like for the university of Texas. Like it's cool to be a Texas Longhorn football player. Um, and they just haven't won in a long time. And you need some of this edginess. Like I honestly think you need some older guys challenging the younger guys and going, you know, look, if you don't want to have, because he also took some ownership and said, mm-hmm. you know, we hadn't done this. You know, we haven't been doing that. You know, he said we a lot. Um, I think you have an old guy who's looking at his kind of twilight of his career, knowing that this is probably his last year on campus and going, hey, if y'all don't want to have the same ups and downs and, and tribulations and stuff that we had to go through over these last four or five years, y'all need to get your stuff together. And if you don't, you're going to be a fifth year senior like me on your second or third coach not really going to bowl games, being talked about as one of the worst, you know, kind of groups of players to come through Texas in a long time. If you don't want those things to be true, here's what you need to fix. Um, So I think it was one of those things where, yeah, he said everything that he was supposed to say and it was true and all that kind of stuff. But I also get why the head football coach of the university maybe doesn't want that, doesn't want that out there in in a public domain because it does give recruiting foil to other schools. And that, that I think is really the biggest part. I don't think if you gave truth serum to Sark or you talk to him off record, I can guarantee you he, Ojomo saying everything that's being said behind closed doors to that team. Right. I bet that came like, that sounded like a Bo Davis rant. Right. right? Like I'd imagine Ojomo had heard pretty much that exact same thing told to him and he was just saying it to the media, but there is a difference between what you say behind closed doors and what you say out loud. And the reason that perception matters so much is this isn't the NFL where you just go sign and draft all your players. You got to convince guys to come here. And if culture doesn't look good, then it's going to be harder and harder to do that. Yep. I think that one of the, one of the quotes that stood out to me that I kind of want to put a, if I could pin it like in my mental Twitter, right? The top of my Twitter account, if I could pin this, I would, Uh, let me see if I can find it. Because I think this is something that can roll over in particular with Texas. And I'll tell you why in a bit. This quote, guys don't want to get together. Guys don't want to spend time together. They don't see. They're so young and so stupid. I don't know how to explain it. They need us. They need the team. And it's so difficult because NIL makes your mind turn, turn its focus to more social media and more exposure. It's a very in-depth problem. He goes on to say how they need to be able to see themselves as a 24, 25-year-old working for that second $50 million contract as opposed to that $40,000 NIL deal. The reason why I think this is going to be an interesting thing to maybe put a pin in is because when you see like the linemen making however much they're going to make, right? And I'm not saying this is a problem in general, right? I'm in favor of NIL. I don't have a problem with that. But in particular with Texas, where you're trying to turn a program, right? What, and we'll possibly see with AM, right? We've heard the rumors about the AM, the, the money that AM boosters are shelling for NIL deals. We'll see now that these programs, when you're not Alabama, when you're not Ohio State that used to being and like you you know every year you're playing for national championships, right? When you're trying to turn a program, you do have to kind of have the long-term view, right? Like, sure, it's cool to get that NIL sponsor deal, right? And I'm wondering, like, 
in the midst of a rebuild, how does NIL play into this, right? How does the individual accolade, the individual prize play into this idea of also trying to overturn a culture? Um, and I'm, 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 I never really thought about it because I was just like, oh yeah, it's fine. They're gonna, you know, players deserve to make money, all this stuff. But hearing a player talk about it this way is very interesting to me because, you know, we, I mean, obviously Quinn Ewers is gonna make however much he's making on NIL. We saw, we saw Hudson Card last year. Um, we heard about the offensive linemen, their deal going on. I think it's all great, but I do wonder about like that little in the midst of a rebuilding program, how that impacts overall, like team camaraderie a little bit. If there, if you are naturally in anything, if you get, if somebody makes a lot more money than somebody else, or somebody sees their value of whatever, um, they're going to, you know, you're going to have selfishness, right? It's human nature, but I'm just curious to see like, does, is this a storyline, right, for Texas, for AM, for programs that aren't necessarily playing for national titles, but also have players that are very marketable and very uh, could be very lucrative in their own right? Yeah, I don't think you can buy your way to a national championship. You can buy sure. your way to some more talent on your roster and stuff like that, but it's not going to be one of those things where it's a X to X situation where we can look at a budget and then look at who's playing in the national championship. I, I just, I don't think it'll be like that. Like professional sports has shown it doesn't work like that. You know, there's plenty of baseball teams that one off season decide to throw a ton of money out there, but that doesn't mean that they win. Right. right. And the basketball and stuff like that, where you all of a sudden the teams goes and spends money on a big free agent signing, but they don't have that core, you know, kind of camaraderie and culture in there uh, to go win. I think that is especially true from 18 to 22 year olds. So it's something that will help your program when it's already going well. And maybe it will help you get some guys onto your campus that maybe you wouldn't have previously, but this is still football. This is still like a 50 person operation. You know, it's not basketball where one or two guys can just go dominate. LeBron can go to the Cavaliers and just take them to the NBA finals or whatever. Like you need a bunch of dudes to be successful in college football and you need them to all be working towards the same goal. Even if they do have individual aspirations, that's not a new part of this equation, right? You yeah. always had guys working towards the NFL or trying to get their own thing done. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think with NIL, there's so many variables that it's happening in real time that we're not going to know until five or 10 years down the road, where we're going to be able to look back and say, okay, this argument made sense. That argument didn't make sense. This happened, this happened. It's just all new ground right now. We're all figuring it out together. One guy uh, I did mention both Texas and A&M, not by accident, because one guy they were able to get on campus was uh, DeSoto wide receiver, Jonte Cook, who kind of uh, showed a little bit of what we're talking about, right? He's a guy who's going to make money in NIL, right? He's a very marketable personality. He's a four-star, high four-star recruit, might be a five-star by the time he leaves. He was on campus for both. And uh, more or less, you can go look at it on, on Twitter. He basically was like, yo, where are the football trophies at? <laughs> he, he's walking that. around. He's like, Texas, I only see swimming trophies. What's going on? And then he said, AM, I only see, I don't know. He didn't even say it was like something. He was like, I still don't see no football trophies. Like, mm -hmm. in, it was funny. It was in the AM, in, in the locker room, like, just like, all right, I still don't see no football trophies. And one, of course, Leon O'Neill was the first to, to speak out on it. He said, uh, take that jersey off <laughs> in typical Leon O'Neill fashion. Um, then Xavier Worthy, I think, tweeted out the, their national championships, you know, Texas national championships saying here they are. But one, it's funny. But two, it's also like, now it's what you just said, Craven. You can't buy success, right? Like, like Jonte Cook's on campus wearing your jersey. You're going to get 
probably between Texas A&M, A&M you're probably going to get seven Jonte Cooks over the next three years, right? Two years, whatever. You're not going to necessarily win with those guys if football just if the on-field product doesn't change, right? The money can be there, all that stuff can be there, but it's show. I mean, like I, I I'm going to put it this way. I think similar to Ajomo, I think Jonte Cooks said the quiet part loud. Because I think when a lot of players go to these programs, even though AM just signed the best recruiting class in the country, right? We that's sure that's still that's still gonna be a thing people see when they go to that, when they go visit. They're gonna be like, all right, where are these football trophies at? Right. Cause they're going to Alabama, they're going to LSU, they're going to Ohio State. And it's like, all right, like I, that's cool. Yeah, locker rooms real nice, you know, the crowd's real nice, NIL deals real nice. I wanna win a title. <laughs> yep. Like, yeah, if you go on like a, you know, a a spring tour, right? And you're stopping by Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Alabama, LSU, Texas, Texas A&M. It's going to be like one of those SAT questions where it's like, which one doesn't fit here? You know, like maybe Texas and Texas A&M grow into that conversation, but these Texas and Texas A&M fans harken back on success that didn't exist. These kids weren't alive. Right. Right. Like Jonte Cook was zero years old when Vince Young won a national championship. Like, that's just what it is like that. It, it, you know, we're all old. So like, we remember that stuff and we're like, yeah, these kids like, yeah, you know, but, but they didn't, they, you know, like in that, like John Day Cook's probably watched football since he was seven years old in an active level. Right. Like you probably yeah. need to be seven or eight to like really watch football and watch. So in his lifetime, Texas and Texas A&M have been average. They've been mediocre. And so, uh, you know, last year we celebrate A&M's like COVID season, but you take away that one and they hadn't really won more than eight games. Um, yeah you know, and like his, in his memory. So um, I, I do think that's the disadvantage for Texas and Texas A&M. And, it, and it's a curious case because we all talk about how high school football is like the Mecca here, like that mm-hmm. nobody else does football as well as Texas. Well, as soon as that moves to the college conversation, it's the opposite, right? Like the state of Texas just has underachieved at the college level. And until Texas and Texas A&M change that, that perception is always going to be there, no matter how good Baylor or how good Texas Tech and, and those kind of schools get. Texas and Texas A&M kind of move the needle for these major prospects. And if you are those guys, you cannot find a real football trophy in there over the last decade, except for maybe Texas' Sugar Bowl win you know, over Georgia. Mm-hmm. All righty. So that'll do it for headlines. We're going to go ahead and get into our interview series, like I said. Uh, it is with UTEP head coach Dana Dimmel. Uh, UTEP as a program, like I said, has always been really good to us. Um, as Craven mentioned, he just basically said, yeah, sure, come on in. We'll make it work. So uh, we really appreciate Coach Dimmel for um, continuing this series for us and and uh, having Craven sit down with him uh, for a, a one-on-one. We're going to go ahead and get right into it. So without further ado, here is UTEP head coach Dana Dimmel. So here with UTEP coach head or UTEP head coach Dana Dimmel. Uh, you were a defensive lineman in high school yes. in Ohio and then early in your career at Kansas State. Uh, I was curious, when you got moved to offensive tackle, was there some hesitancy there? Did they have to kind of talk you into going and playing offense a little less glorious of a position? Yeah, it is. You know, obviously it is, Mike. But uh, what happened with me is I love playing defensive line. And as you said, that's all I ever played. But I had a, I played my whole high school career with a torn ACL. And it never got diagnosed. And so then I went to Hutch Juco and played more with a torn ACL, went to Kansas State, torn ACL. And the whole time I'm chipping cartilage off my knee. I mean, I'd start every game by chipping a cartilage and then I'd say, oh, God, I feel better. And the next day it would blow up. So long story short, it, yeah, it was just brutal. You know, it's back in the day when you just didn't. And uh, they'd tape it. You know, they'd tape it and I'd go out and play. And um, so 
by the time I was a junior, my mobility wasn't D-line mobility anymore. It was O-line mobility. And um, so, you know, I played O-line my, my last years of my career there. So, I, But I loved it. It was good. But I sure missed the D-line for sure. How hard is that transition? It was hard. You know, it was a hard transition as a player, um, you know, to, to, to make that jump. And, and then my senior year, which really made it fun, was that we had a new head coach come in my senior year. Because when I played at K-State, I was there three years and had three different head coaches because that was K-State, you know, back in the day before it got turned around. There was a, you know, massive struggle. And um, we played strong and weak. So now I've only been a two, two uh, offensive lineman for my second year. And now you got to learn how to get play right tackle and left tackle. And one of the hardest positions to play is left tackle. And so now you're doing it half the time, you know, and it was really, a, I felt like something really difficult to, to try to comprehend. Physically, yeah, you mentioned uh, the Hutchinson Community College stuff. Like, what what did that experience kind of teach you? At, not only as a football player, but just like as a young man about oh, yeah. yourself. Yeah, you know what taught me is is why I ended up in a junior college. You know, my sophomore year in high school. It's a great story. I don't know if we talked about this before, but the only class that I passed was driver's ed, right? So I could drive down the to High Street at Ohio State and have fun, right? So, uh, but it taught me some lessons because now all of a sudden here I am coming out. of you know, and football is my way to get out, you know, my way to get to, to get to college. And so I had to go to junior college because I had dug such a hole my sophomore year in high school. And so when I went to junior college, you know, I took a Greyhound bus to St. Louis. And in the middle of the night, I had to transfer in downtown St. Louis from Greyhound to Trailways or Trailways to Greyhound, I think it was. And in the middle of the night, downtown, carrying my little foot locker, that, and that's all I had that I was bringing with me to the junior college. And I get to the JUCO a little early, and I make great friends with like five or six guys that were from Miami, Florida. So now you start to learn, you know, how to get along and make teammates that are going to be friends for your whole lifetime. But it made you really, really appreciate things. And um, so I got a real hunger to make sure that I got my academics, you know, in order from that point on. And, and uh, it makes you appreciate when you get to a four-year school. Um, how long into your life did it take you before you were like, okay, I want to be a football coach? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, it took me till my football career was over. I never thought about being a football coach. And I got that, you know, uh, rude awakening when I went, you know, I signed with the Minnesota Vikings and I went to camp. But I was just thinking about that the other day. And, and uh, you know, I thought I was doing really well, but I'm the only guy out there with a knee brace on because I'm playing on a torn ACL. And I don't know how I even passed the physical because I had to go through like four doctors to pass the physical, but I passed it. And um, so I'm really thinking I'm doing good. And the, and the O-line coach says, hey, Danny, you know, coach, head coach wants to see you. You know, and I'm like, oh, good, I'm moving up from, you know, second string to first team. And he said, bring your playbook. And so, you know, in the league, when they tell you to bring your playbook, it's over, right? So that's, that's you know, that was kind of hit me. So I went to the best doctor in the country in, in Cincinnati to try to get the knee fixed. Uh, and when I came out of the surgery, there, I didn't feel any difference. So then he told me, hey, there's no way we can repair your knee. You're gonna be lucky to be, by the time you reach 35, you'll have to have a replacement knee if you do nothing but walk, okay? So that's kind of, all right, so boom. Now I'm like, okay, football's completely over. And, uh, and I go back to Kansas State, and I really don't know what I'm gonna do, you know? And, and I had some coaches that I really liked there, and they said, well, why don't you just try GA? And, 
and, and see if you like it and the rest is history you know that's kind of but I never had the aspirations to be a football coach it just kind of happened because I was one of those guys that was just tunnel vision I was going to play football my whole life you know uh, Bill Snyder gets to, to Kansas State yes. and kind of turns that program around. What were your kind of first impressions or maybe a story of kind of first meeting Coach Snyder? Yeah, well, great. The first thing about me with Coach Snyder, and I learned, you know, because people always say, you know, what are the things you learned in turning a program around and what, what did you learn from Bill Snyder? And so some of the things I learned from is that uh, there was a longtime secretary that just passed away this year that uh, became like a mom to me, and she had been there 42 years. Well, at the time, she'd been there probably 17 years, and she was coach's secretary, and her and I had already become close in my two years as a GA under the previous coach. So the first day that Bill Snyder gets to his desk in Manhattan, I just reminded him of this story when I saw him at at Joanne's uh, funeral. There's nothing on his desk except for Dana Dimmel's resume just sitting right there. So I had it inside already. You know, Bill Snyder looks at it and says, who is Dana Dimmel, right? <laughs> I don't know who Dana Dimmel is. I got to hire, I got to turn around the worst program in college football history, and Dana Dimmel's means something that he should be right in the middle of my desk. So, um, but that's the thing about him is that when he came into a program, as one that was struggling as much as Kansas State, he evaluated everything before he said, hey, listen, everything here is bad. Right. Everybody here is bad, right? And I got to change it all, right? And what Bill Snyder did is he came in, he asked the former players, he interviewed all the former players, he talked to uh, as many people as he could and said, okay, what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses? And then he evaluated strengths and weaknesses of a program. And then he made his changes gradually instead of making wholesale changes. And he and the other thing that he did that I think is really, really crucial is he grasped the players. He didn't point the fingers and say, you guys are horrible and, and you guys stink and ever lash out to us in the media. Uh, of course, I wasn't playing, but lash out to the players in the media about how poor, poor players he had. He was always trying to embrace the players because he had a great understanding that it's how you treat people. Right, it's how you treat people because if you treat those people right, then they're going to help recruit your program and help you get better players down the road. But it's just the way you handle your business, and so those are the things I learned from Bill Snyder that have been, you know, very, 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 very valuable for me in my career. Yeah, you went from not thinking you were going to be a coach until you're what, like 22, 23, 24 years old. I was old. 25, 24, yeah, 24. And yeah. then you're a head coach at 34. Yeah, at 34, it was um, crazy. And at the time, yeah. the youngest head coach at, at that time in college football at Wyoming. I get what on the job training did you get maybe that first year, or what what shocked you the most about being a head coach that maybe you thought? Yeah, you know it was funny because we had got to where you know we went through all the struggles at Kansas State. We just had this system, and the system had started to get built, and it kind of just was perpetuating. And we had the good years at Kansas State in ninety four, ninety five, ninety nine, three through ninety six, and then boom, all of a sudden I'm thirty four years old. But I've really only been coaching because I played later, so I've really only been coaching for not I've been a full-time coach I think six years when I got my um, you know first head coaching opportunities and so I just I just put the system in and put my stamp on it and it just you know we just started having success right away and so the things that you know it really wasn't one of those deals where all of a sudden I kind of got hit in the face like oh boom this head coaching stuff 
you know, it, it is totally different. I didn't get that feel. I didn't because our, we already had a system that was put into place, and I just tried to really try to take that system and move it to another school. And I think what helped me, Mike, is there's a lot of similarities between Wyoming and Kansas State. You know what I mean? You're dealing with the same type of program and the same type of players that come They come to Laramie, Wyoming because they love football, right? You come to Manhattan, Kansas because you love football. And so it made the transition easier for me. I felt like the transition from Wyoming to Houston was a little bit more of an interesting where I learned more about just, uh, you know, when I got to Houston, I didn't have the culture wasn't near the same, you know, as the cultures I was used to the culture previous there. And again, again, I had to, you know, you know, evaluate, say what's good, you know, what needs to be changed. And I thought that's where I really had to, I thought, uh, you know, my early years at Houston, I actually had to do, I actually did a better job, even though I wasn't successful in wins and losses as a head coach than I did. At, at Wyoming because the challenges were different. You were trying to, you know, get academics in order. You know, you were trying to get discipline in order. There was a lot of things that I was accustomed to having that weren't there. And so that's where, as a head coach, you kind of get slapped in the face a little bit and say, gosh, you know, there's so much more. And that's where I really learned that some of your most important people in your program are, A, your strength coach, right, and because they're around the players the most, and then, B, is your trainer, C's your academic person, and D's your football operations, and then it goes to your assistant coaches. And it might not even go in that order when I say A, B, C, and D. So that's where I kind of really had to make some, you know, changes a little bit in what we were doing to, to fit a different type of uh, uh, system, a different type of um, um, program. Yeah, the Houston tenure didn't end the way that you wanted it to end. Kind of what we talked about this a little bit last fall, too. Kind of what did that teach you about yourself? Just kind of overcoming that and having to like pick yourself back up. Yeah, uh, you know, it it taught me more just like what you said. What it really taught me is that you just have to pick yourself back up and you have to, you know, because all of a sudden when you're a head coach, you are on top of the business, you know, and you just it's just a different, you know, and when you're 34 and had the success that you and I talked about previous and had the all the opportunities and you chose to go to Houston when you could have gone many many places and then three years later you're not a coach anymore right you don't you're not a head coach anymore it's really a you know it's really kind of a boom slap because everything had come so smoothly and so easily for me so it was one of those where I I fortunately enough I had the opportunity because I still had some time left on my contract to just sit back and digest. And I don't think it's always good for coaches when they get let go to go jump right into something else. I think it's good to digest. And so we got back to Manhattan. I got to coach Winston, you know, in third grade, got to have spent a ton of family time with with, uh, Winston, Josie and Julie. And it was great because I could really say, okay, now what's my next step? you know, and getting myself back to where I, where I want to be in the business. And so I thought that was a good time, so a good time for me to really reflect back and say, you know, what, uh, you know, what do we need to do? And so to me, the big thing is just always treat people the right way, you know, always respect people and always do your, do the best job at what you're doing. And so it was important for me to have that because some coaches feel threatened by coaches that have been head coaches, right? And so you don't ever want to put that on to, to uh, head coaches. So I think my personality uh, and my reputation put itself out there that, hey, I'm, I'm going to come in and just do the best job at what I'm doing right now. And I don't want the head coaching job 
That's not my, that's not my, I've been there and done that. That's not my admirations right now. That's not where I want to get to. And it really wasn't. It was just like, I want to be, you know, where I'm happy, successful, and, and being around people and making, making players better. And so that's the, that's kind of the attitude and the work ethic that I took into my jobs at Arizona. And it was great because we came in Arizona, Mike was really struggling and I felt like I could really help him from just my experience. And we turned it around before we went back to Kansas State and Kansas State had dropped and we did the same thing there. So it was fun for me to be a part of making a difference in programs. And so that's where I put all my focus. How much does that translate to the UTEP job, right, where that was also kind of a fixer up? Well, it was really important for me, and that's why when this job opened, it was important uh, to me at the time. Winston and Josie had finished up, and, and they were out. You know, they had both graduated, and it was easy for me now to say, okay, now I can take a chance again. I can go back and, and pursue being a head coach, and I would got to the point where I felt like I was ready to do it again. I was ready for the grind of what it takes mentally, you know, the grind that you have to get yourself into because I know a lot of people in this business that don't ever want to be head coaches, you know, because they see the stress and strain that it puts on you. And so, you know, I felt like this was an opportunity where all the things I'd learned through all the years kind of fit because of my recruiting ties uh, in Texas. I thought that, and, and then the turnaround opportunity, because I've really never been anywhere that's never been a turnaround. Even with Wyoming, Joe had done a really good job that last year and got the Purdue job, but before that, they were, you know, hadn't had two or three. They hadn't had the three. We had three winning seasons there. They hadn't had three winning seasons at Wyoming uh, in 30 years in a row, you know. And so there was, it was a it was fun to get that program really on track as well. And then lastly, you mentioned your son Winston, who is also a, a really good football player. Like, how hard how hard was it to separate coach, former player, also dad? Like, how yeah. how did that how did that? It was it was go? so easy because he he handled it the way you know it's 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 really about how he handles it, you know. And he didn't try to take advantage of the situation, you know. If he was one that was not you know not going to work hard and was I was somebody I was going to have to. You know, make exceptions for it would have made it a hard situation because I would have, you know, I would have treated him just like the rest of the guys, but I didn't have to because he had tons of respect from his teammates and he was always one of the hardest working guys on the team and then you know really was a player you know and so it made it easy that uh, you know you can use him and, and use all of his assets because he backed it up with his performance levels and so it was really really a fun experience for me and one that we cherished and treasured and I didn't ever want it to end and uh, it was unfortunate when it had to but you know you only get those years for so many. I appreciate it coach. Yeah Mike, thanks man. Thanks again to UTEP head coach Dana Dimmel for sitting with us. Craven um, this is your second time, I think, meeting him, correct? Like in person? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, what you met him once, obviously, before, and I met I met him when we went to uh, El Paso in the in the fall. What what, what was kind of um, I don't know, I always kind of got even the first time I met him, I kind of got this old like old friend vibe, like from from Coach Dimmel. Like he, I don't know if he's just that type of personality or what, but like First time I met him, it was like it was like I hadn't seen my good friend in like ten years. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. One former offensive lineman of the best, right? Like if every if every head coach was a former offensive lineman, our jobs would be much easier because they don't have that like ability to like think about what they should or shouldn't say. They just talk, right? Because they you know they just they just say stuff. And so I always enjoyed that about Coach Dimmel. He's like a pretty honest guy. Like not many people are as honest about like their upbringing and the troubles that it brought about like he's very open about like he was a horrible high school student like mm -hmm. he 
he skipped a lot of class in high school and went to the local college and partied. And like, that's why he ended up at a junior college out of high school and stuff instead of straight to Kansas state is he just, he wasn't a very good student, didn't pass any of the classes. And I think that helps them at a place like Kansas state eventually. And then now at UTEP where they do do a lot of Juco recruiting, a lot of community college recruiting. I think he can walk into those situations and, and he's somebody who can legitimately say, I needed a second chance. Like I, I needed like kind of a place after high school to like go and figure my stuff out and grow as a human. And uh, I, I've always liked his vulnerability with that. But like you said, he's just a, a friendly dude. And you, know, you talk to him one time. I, I'm always impressed by people who like remember little things about you. You know, you mm-hmm. have like a conversation, like a five, 10 minute conversation. And then you see him again, six months later. And they're like, Oh, how's the ranch going? Or how, you know, like, and you're just like, Oh, wow, that's pretty amazing skill or whatever. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a fun interview. I think what's cool about being the head coach at UTEP is you kind of get to do your own thing. You know, he doesn't have to answer to a lot of people, you know, he can kind of do the program the way he wants to do the program. And yeah. it's hard to argue with the success. He took over a program that hadn't won a game the year before. And, you know, now they're seven and six and, and getting any even better. He feels pretty confident about this team. So it'll be interesting to see if UTEP, can kind of redo what they did last year because they've only gone to consecutive bowl games twice in their history. And so mm-hmm. this would only be the third time that they've ever done it back to back. So plenty, plenty out there uh, to challenge, to challenge that team. And he's just turned it, he's turned it around a lot in the last three or four years that the players talk about the level of competition at practice as a night and day, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's pretty impressive to see what's going on out there. Can you imagine going through your entire football career almost with a torn ACL? <laughs> I thought that was, that was most, and of course he mentioned that back then they don't really, they didn't really have the science to, to, to know what that was, you know, right. but I just thought that was one of the craziest parts of that. Like, you know, something's wrong, but you don't right. know exactly what they're like. Oh, just tape it up. It hurts. I oh, just tape that thing up and, and get oh, back I just got there. a bum knee or bum leg. Exactly. Exactly. It's a whole torn ACL. I guess you're an offensive tackle now, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. You can't move anymore. You can't. You lost your mobility. Like, let's switch you from defense to offense. But yeah. I did like, I did like that he compared, like you mentioned taking over UTEP. And I did like that he talked about, you know, going to Kansas State, where at the time was the worst, worst program in the country, right? Like, mm-hmm him and him and coach Snyder, which, you know, I feel like there's like all, there's like 20 books that are written about Bill Snyder and just like his whole career and what he built it at Kansas state there. But like, I, I, in a way he, it, it made sense that he was the guy to kind of help fix UTEP a little bit because like he used, he'd seen how it was done. Right. He'd seen over literally like what uh, over the course of 20, 20 ish years <laughs> in Manhattan, um, trying is seeing somebody do it at a certain level and you transfer that to a place with not, it's not one-to-one, right? It's not the big 12, but there's recruiting issues. There's, you know, it's kind of a location. We, it's kind of a weird location. It's, you're not going to, it's it kind of get, you have to be, be a little uh, untraditional with it. And, you know, he, he, he oversaw some of the best times in Kansas state um, in kind of both eras um, uh, under Bill Snyder. And, yeah, I was, I was, I just kind of liked how we talked a little bit about like that kind of steering his direction and kind of, you know, uh, seeing how that was working and then now seeing what he's done at UTEP. And just like the way he was honest about how much it hurt him to lose that Houston job. Like, sure. He got fired early in his Houston tenure and you could tell that devastated him to where it took him a while to, to decide to be a head coach again. I, I believe in his mind, he, when he left that Houston job or when he was forced to leave that Houston job, 
it does feel like there was a big part of him that was just going to be an assistant coach for the rest of his career. He didn't want to just take on that and like have that, you know, wool pulled out from under him. And we didn't talk about it in this interview, but when I was out there in the fall, you know, Jim Center's the AD there who hired him. And, and he's, Dimmel told me when they were having their conversation, he told Center, like, look, I'll take the job, but you're not to bother me about our wins or losses for four years. Hmm. I want time to do this thing before you're on me about if it, if it's getting figured out or not. And yeah. in, in year four, they make a bowl game, you know, and he didn't feel like he got that opportunity in Houston. A lot of coaches aren't as honest with, you know, their past stops and how much mm -hmm. that can hurt them and stuff. They're not as vulnerable with that. Uh, but kind of like why, you know, we're talking about not being a great student and some of the, the trials and tribulations he had early in his life. He's pretty honest about the trials and tribulations he had later in his life. And as somebody who also went through some stuff, I can imagine as a 20, 21 year old in that locker room, you respect that even more. And you can go like, okay, that man's an honest guy who's been through what I'm going through and he's not going to judge my problems. I can go to him and talk to coach demo about whatever. And you want to play for a guy like that. And at a program like UTEP, that's not like a money-making program. It's not, you're not going to have like a bunch of NIL stuff. Like we were just talking about and things like that. You got to really love football. And so mm -hmm. He's surrounded himself with a bunch of dudes like him that are just kind of low-key, quiet, loving football kind of dudes. And, and that's what that UTEP program is. And I think the best programs take after their head coach, like whatever that is, right? Like you got to find an identity and you got to lay that identity down. And like at UTEP, you talk to every one of those players and you, it feels like you're talking to Coach Dimmel. Mm -hmm. Mallory, do we got any questions about the minors? Yes. With uh, Jacob Cowing transferring to Arizona and Justin Garrett graduating, who steps up at wide receiver? Yeah, I mean, I think the number one answer is Tywin Smith. Um, he was their third leading receiver last year. You know, it's interesting. He had put himself into the transfer portal after the season. So they had a real fear of losing Cowing, Garrett, and Smith. But, uh, you know, for whatever reason, either he didn't get as much uh, attention as he thought he would or maybe just – it wasn't as good of a landing spot as where he was. He was able to come back. So they expect, you know, him to kind of take over that number one cowing position. Uh, and then they brought in a couple guys from the Juco level. They brought in Tyler JC's, you know, leading receiver. They had a couple guys that redshirted last year that they feel are pretty good that they, they were stacked at the position last year. So they were able to redshirt a couple guys like Ballard and stuff that they think are, are going to be instant impact dudes. So he says, you know, this could be coach speak, right? That, you know, the, the position is more talented than it was last year. Maybe they don't have a guy as talented as Jacob Cowing, mm -hmm. but the third, fourth, fifth guy in the rotation are better than they were last year. So maybe we don't see somebody with 70 catches for 1,200 yards and 12 touchdowns or anything. It's more spread out. But I do think Gavin Hardison at quarterback has plenty of targets to throw the ball to. Yeah, I know they brought in um... – I forgot his name, but there's a Tyler Juco's number one receiver they brought in. Um, they brought in another number one receiver from, I believe it was, I had just had it up, uh, Santa Barbara Community College. So like they're bringing in, they're, they clearly, clearly know, in addition to the guys that they sat, they clearly know where, they clearly, I guess their depth is better, like you mentioned. They clearly know that. But yeah, like you mentioned, I wonder, so much of their offense was just let's go throw it to the potential NFL talented guys. <laughs> and so I wonder how much of that, um, how much of their big play effect kind of gets affected or kind of gets hurt by have, not having those two guys. Kelly Akar is the guy from Tyler JC and, and he, he was real big on him. I mean, he mentioned him like three or four times when we were talking about the wide receiver position. So he's, he's a breakout player to watch. And then another thing they mentioned is, 
you know, he, he's going to use the tight ends and the running backs more in the passing game this year. Mm. Um, and that's because Gavin Hardison has grown up enough to protect himself. You know, early mm. on in a player's career, sometimes you need that max protect because the quarterback doesn't recognize defenses enough to get himself out of bad positions. I think they trust Hardison enough now to know where the unblocked rusher is coming from to mm. where they could use Trent Thompson and the tight end or Ronald Awad at running back in that passing game kind of open stuff up because a lot of times you look at their film last year and they're, you know, they're running two man routes, you know, yeah. a lot of the time. like it's old school, 1980s, 1990s, you know, like play action, two man route, max protect stuff. I do think without as much top end talent at wide receiver, you see them get a little bit more diverse in the way that they attack defenses. The defense stepped up in a number of big ways this season, especially even just from last season and the few seasons before. Will we see an even bigger improvement from them in 2022, or are they going to be kind of more of the same? Yeah, I think they're going to be really good this year. I mean, that that front seven is tremendous. Like, And then you add their safeties in there. I mean, honestly, cornerbacks, their only real hole that they have to fill from last year. They have two really good defensive ends, Jadrian Taylor, praise. I'm not going to be able to say his last name. Uh, but you know, like they, they have some good, good edge rushers, uh, Breon Hayward at linebacker is as productive as you get in the state. I mean, next to Katie Davis at North Texas had the second most tackles in the state of Texas. So, you know, they returned two linebackers with over a hundred tackles, two defensive ends with over six sacks, you know, safeties with plenty of experience, you know, uh, Dennis Barnes at nickel is one of the best nickel corners. Um, in the state. So if they can figure out, you know, kind of who their number one corner is going to be on the outside, this defense is going to be really good. And what's nice is if you're not so sure about your cornerback position, the best way to help out that position is by having a really good pass rush. And they should be able to have that to where you're not going to have to cover for four seconds. You're just going to have to do your job for two or three seconds. That's going to help some of those younger guys at that position. Yeah, totally. I think that uh, I want to say Bill Connolly had them as, let me see, I have it right here. They had 26th in returning defensive produ production in the nation. Like they're bringing back almost 80% of that unit. So I think they should be at least as good, if not improving, um, considering they're going to have that cohesion and that kind of familiarity with the scheme. And lastly, I think expectations have exponentially grown in just one season. Will UTEP be able to meet or even exceed those expectations for future seasons? You know, is, is reaching a bowl game the new expectation for this program? I think the biggest compliment we can give Coach Dimmel and what he's done at UTEP is the fact we're having this conversation. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, right. Like this time last year, we would have been talking about like, you know, could they win three games? Could yeah. they win four games? Like, can they just not be the worst team in Conference USA? And now it does feel like it'd be a disappointment if they didn't do as well as they did last year. They should be able to, you know, they got New Mexico, New Mexico State and, and out of conference play. So that's two winnable games right there. So you really got you to go win four, maybe five Conference USA games. Well, they've proven they can do that. And they, they should be just as good, if not better than that, this year. I mean, they return most of their offensive line. They're starting quarterback, both running backs. We just talked about 80% of their defensive production back. You know, there's not many reasons that this team um, shouldn't make a bowl game. Now, the margins are very thin. You know, like Gavin Harson gets hurt or Breon Hayward gets hurt on defense. You know, like they are a couple injuries away from it all falling apart just because they don't have the depth of some of those other teams. Uh, but if everybody can stay healthy, like they did last year for the most part, you know, I would think anything under six wins would feel like a disappointment for this program. And that's a great sign of, of where it's gone to where it is now. Yeah, I was looking at their record just now. And obviously that kind of the North Texas game is going to say a lot um, yeah. because 
obviously they almost had that game last year. They probably should have won that game last year. And even not counting that game, I still see like seven winnable games, right? Like in, in conference, I mean, or not, uh, including the New Mexico and New Mexico state games. Um, and so like, I look at it and it's like, again, football doesn't work this way. Cause obviously 50, 50 games go either way, but I could see, like, I don't have to squint very hard to see eight wins on this schedule, right? Obviously it'll probably, you know, just by the nature of the sport, go down and hover around six, maybe um, they'll lose a game. They shouldn't, whatever, but I'm looking at North Texas, New Mexico state, New Mexico, La Tech, FAU, Middle Tennessee, Rice, FIU, right? I, those are all winnable games, right? I don't think they're going to win all of them, obviously, but you don't have to squint very hard to see how this team could improve next year um, or this upcoming year, I should say. Uh, I think a big part of that will be what happens at the wide receiver position, obviously. Um, a big part of that will be how much Gavin Hardison can stay consistent and not turn the ball over. Um, especially when he does have those safety valves of those playmakers on the outside. Um, but with that being said, I think the defense might improve. And I think that might put him in less prone positions to maybe have to make a big play or have to kind of push the ball down the field when he, when, when he can probably be a little more conservative with it. So um, yeah, I think that their expectations should be at least for the foreseeable future, like bowl game, like why not? It feels weird to say this, but like give, I think I could determine the over-under based on that North Texas result, right? Sure. Like they win that North Texas game, give me bowl game all day long, right? They lose that game, I think it's going to be tough. And if you're UTEP, you're getting that at home, and you're getting it before North Texas is going to really figure out their quarterback position. It's I was going to say, yeah. It's going to take North Texas three or four weeks, in my opinion, to kind of figure out who they are, kind of like it did last year, unfortunately, yeah. for Green Green. And so I think if you're UTEP, you'd rather play North Texas week one than week 10. And you get that yes. at home. And, and so I do think that's advantageous for them. Instead of starting the season 0-1 at Oklahoma, right, you're going to get to start maybe 1-0 at home and kind of capture some of that momentum you built at the end part of last year. Um, and so, yeah, you know, they, they have a chance to really do some stuff. And, and the fact that we're having this conversation on like a bowl game being kind of the floor for UTEP is, is a pretty impressive turnaround. Yep. So, uh, yeah, that's basically it for our UTEP talk. Um, by the math, you could probably figure out that we're almost done with this, but by the math, you can also probably figure out who we're waiting on. Um, so we'll leave it at that. I will give you my own little hint. That's my own little hint of uh, what we're trying to get in the down the pipeline. So if you don't see an interview next week, well, <laughs> you can kind of make your own conclusion. <laughs> it wasn't I'm just going to call him up effort. real quick. I'm just going to call him on speed dial right now. I'm just going to call him up real quick. It wasn't for lack of effort. If any listeners out there have a line into Jimbo Fisher, we would appreciate it. You know, just, uh, just let me know. So, uh, yeah, uh, we might hell next week might be like Casey Keeler or something like that. We may, we may be, <laughs> maybe jumping down to the FCS level because uh, 11 of 12 may be as, may be as good as we're going to get. Yeah, so if any AM fans are wondering, hey, where's my Jimbo Fisher interview? Trust us, we're asking that same we're question. Right. <laughs> What's unfortunate is that, like it would be on brand for me to leave them out, right? Like you, you know, there there are people on Twitter who could see that as a purposeful act, and I right. promise that it's not. Like I I would love to, I would love to get that done. I just don't know how possible it's gonna be, you know. Uh, yep. so we don't work for a recruiting website, so I don't know, I don't know how. 
how much we offer Texas A&M at this moment in time. Hey, honestly, I think he's just scared to follow Dana Dimmel. Like that, that's just my personal preference. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. He signed the one of the receivers that you've got. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. He signed the no one recruiting class and he started acting different. I don't know what's going on there, but we were cool. Brand new. We were cool. I thought, Brand new. thought we were cool. But anyway, uh, so we'll see what interview we have for you next week. If we have one, if not, we'll be back with another episode regardless. Uh, Craven, you stay safe on the road. Mallory, uh, you hold down the fort for us, I guess. Oh, I will. Don't worry. Keep the studio <laughs> nice and cold for us. <laughs> yeah, I'll be uh, I'll be back next week. I got all the DFW. I made it to where the DFW teams were kind of my last stop. So SMU, TCU, North Texas next week. So I'll be back up in the uh, great DFW area that I love so Your much. Your favorite. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Well, we'll talk to you guys next week. Like I said, be sure to subscribe rate, review, all that stuff that helps us because uh, we do look over the numbers weekly. And so we do like to see some uh, marginal improvement as the weeks go along. So thank you guys. And we will talk to you guys soon.